Would you mind putting your hands together to welcome Gabrielle Zevin to the stage? <laughs> Hello. Pretty good turnout for a 10 a.m. session on a Friday. We were sort of joking backstage that we look alike. Yeah. <laughs> that we share no common ancestry that we know of. We didn't go through it we all. We didn't go through it all, yeah. yeah. Um, which is a funny thing about race. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just yeah, don't you know, know who your sister is in, in New Zealand. Yeah. It's true, but we have the same here, so it's a good start. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to intro Gabrielle a little bit before we start chatting. Gabrielle Zevin is the author of 10 novels to date. Her work includes international bestsellers such as The Storied Life of A.J. Fikri, the YA novel Elsewhere, and of course her latest book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. She's also written screenplays, which we will get into. She's adapted her own work for the screen, as well as writing the original screenplay for Conversations with Other Women. Gabrielle is an American author and she was born in New York and she currently lives in LA. So how are you feeling today, Gabrielle? <laughs> I was saying that the jet lag from Australia to Los Angeles is not that much, but somehow the jet lag from Sydney to New Zealand is really getting me. Mm. <laughs> That two hours is like a yeah. key two hours. And then you know? all the traffic that you had to deal with coming in from the airport. Yes, um, I was really impressed by your level of traffic, I have to say. <laughs> so uh, my driver said to me that it, you know, it's like Los Angeles. I said it is like Los Angeles, but the weird thing is that like 10 million people live in the greater Los Angeles area. So it's as if during rush hour in Auckland, every single person is in a car at the same time. <laughs> Like that you can produce as much traffic as Los Angeles seems amazing to it's, me. Yeah, or embarrassing. Or physically you know? impossible. Yeah. Like it seems like a mathematical puzzle that I will not be able to solve in the brief time that I'm in New no, Zealand. No. So, um, so we'll, ta we'll start by um, talking about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I'm imagining that most of you here have read the book or that you're with someone who's a huge fan of it and they've dragged you here. Um, but briefly, I'll just run through it. Um, so the book came out in 2022, and it follows the friendship between Sam and Sadie, two video game designers over many years. Um, I think that it's such a thrilling book, but it's also a really comforting and like warm book. Um, there are so many different worlds inside it because of the games that Sam and Sadie create, but also because of all the different years of their lives that we are with them. Um, and it's amazing to me how the authors of the books we love just have the characters we love like bubbling around in their heads because um, that was my favorite thing about the book like I wanted to be friends like desperately wanted to be friends with those characters they need friends yeah, yeah. yeah they actually do <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you write characters that you knew or characters that like you wish you did um, that's an interesting question uh, I think when, I, when you start out as a novelist, and it is my 10th novel, but when you're writing your first novel, you can kind of just draw on yourself and people you know. And then by the time you get to your second novel, you realize that is going to be an inadequate strategy. Mm. You don't actually know enough people. And so the funny thing about that is, I think the way I write characters is, and when, actually when I got better at writing characters, 
In a sense, what you have to acknowledge is that at the center of all of your books, narcissistically and factually, is you. And so in a sense, I had to realize and all the ways in which I am good, all the ways in which I am terrible. I had to kind of realize what my like, privileges are, the advantages I've had in life that other people don't have, and the disadvantages I've had in life. And in a sense, every person you write, then, is some either close or far distance from you. So I have things I share with them uh, and things that I don't. But I don't think until I really um, could see myself fully was I able to see anyone else at all. You know, and so if you look at like Sam, he and I share an ethnic background. We're both half Jewish and half Korean. Um, but his, uh, and a lot of his experiences around race are things that come from my own life. Mm -hmm. um, with Sadie, uh, a lot of her experiences as a woman in the arts are experiences that I've had, you know, and so a lot of that are the things that are close between her and myself, and, and that's how I write them. I think something that changed for me uh, as I've written more books is realizing that a lot of novels I read it feels like for the first 100 pages or so, maybe the author is trying to get to know these characters too. But I realized at a certain point that I needed to know everything about them from page one to write them fully. And so that's a thing that I've changed about my work over the years. Hmm. That's interesting, just running out of, <clears throat> running out of people. <laughs> You know, I'm an introvert who presents as an extrovert. Um, but, you know, really writing characters is kind of like going to a party at, say, a book festival or something. And, you know, you don't know anybody at all, and you're trying to, like, draw out little bits of conversation, make all this, like, small talk for a while until you can maybe make a deeper connection. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what it feels like at the beginning of writing a book. Like, I'm surrounded by strangers and outlines of people, and I'm just trying to get them to uh, small talk their way into a personality, you know. Um, when you say that, you know, you and Sam share an ethnic background mm. in the book, I read that it took you quite a long time to, I definitely have a hair on my lip. <laughs> you definitely did. I did. I saw it. <laughs> it wasn't um, just fictional. No, I felt it. Um, the, like, it, you said in an interview that it took you quite a while to write someone that was that close to you. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because it's an interesting thing to move towards. I feel like a lot of writers start with the exact, you know, background that they have and then... Yeah, I mean, in a sense, uh, the answer to that question is probably like, once upon a time I was born, you know? And, and so, which is to say that, you know, I was born in a country where there weren't a lot of people like me. In fact, we were even talking about this a little bit, but, um, you know, the way I experienced uh, Kiri Takanawa, um, we said Kiri Takanawa in the US because we're wrong. Um, <laughs> but the way I experienced her as a kid growing up, I was born in 1977, was one of the few AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander, like celebrities, you know? And so there were like five people that you might have seen that looked at all like me who were in the media. And one of them was her, and like Leah Salonga, who was Miss Saigon. Who was an icon. <laughs> Yoko Ono, mm. and uh, Mr. Sulu from Star Trek. <laughs> and that was kind of it for Asians. Maybe like you saw like a Jackie Chan movie or something, and that was kind of the whole thing. 
And so in a sense, because I am half uh, like Eastern European Jewish and, and I grew up in a town that was largely like 66% Jewish, it became easier to maybe identify with those parts of my background when I started thinking about making art. So for many years, and, and by the way, all these answers are reverse engineered, like I'm looking back at my choices from a, a vantage point of 20 years in the future. You know, but when I think about it, I think for a long time, I saw fiction as a kind of mask I could wear. You know, that it was easier for me to write books where nobody could possibly mistake me for any of the characters in it, the situations from my life, um, or the parents in it, say, for my parents. If they were bad parents, they were definitely not mine, you know? And so over the years, though, it became more interesting to me and quite stifling to wear such a mask. And so I sort of let it slip. And you can see it as, you know, I write over the years between my first novel and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And by the time I got to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, I just found that I wanted to write closer to myself, you know, that I began to see, uh, and Sam talks about it in the book, he talks about like going to Koreatown in Los Angeles for the first time as a kid and realizing that if he, uh, you know, that the world was filled with Asian people and that in fact, you know, he might exist at the center of the world and not at the periphery. And I would say that is an experience I had, but much older in life, like as I went to travel in Asia as an adult and as the world even began to seem warmer to people that looked like me. Um, I began to want to write myself more. In fact, I became hungry for it. Mm. You know, I think there's a way you can write when you are positioning yourself more at the center of culture that it changes your authority. And, and, and anyway, by the time I write this book, I kind of don't even care if anybody like is going to like it. You know, if anything, <laughs> if anything, um, it's incredibly surprising to me in certain ways that a thing that is as specific as this book right. is has resonated with so many people, yeah. you know? So I don't have any, I have no answers, you know? But <laughs> While also giving many answers, so. <laughs> that's reassuring though, isn't it? Like the more specific you get and the more you write exactly what you want to write, the more people want to read it. Yeah, and I think for so long, books about, books that had people of color in them, especially in America, were usually about the story of that person of color being a person of color. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, and that isn't to say that's the stories people wanted to write, that was the stories that the industry mm. wanted to publish, mm. you know, in a sense that the person of color is meant to go act as a like cultural and ethnic tour guide mm -hmm. for other people. Mm -hmm. And it's much less so, I think that isn't true anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, in a sense, uh, the story of race in this book is just one story, you know. The larger stories about, like, technology, connection, and all of these things. And so, you know, I'm happy to, to like, speak about it, actually. But, in fact, you know, it's a privilege of having lived as long as I have that now you don't have to tell a story about Asian people and it's just, like, you know, maybe an immigrant story about how hard it is to be an Asian in America. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that change. Um, so, we stay with Sam and Sadie through so many years in this book, um, and something that really struck me about the way that you wrote it is you were always giving us, like, past, present, and future. Mm. Like, we, 
we read the book and we knew that whatever stage of their relationship we were currently in, like we weren't gonna stay there. Why did you, why did you wanna hold all these different times so close? <laughs> I think because we do, you know? In a way, I was, I can just give an example of it, which is that I've had such a crazy year. Like this is my 31st city I've done an event in, something like that. I've traveled constantly. Just this year, I've been in Germany, Spain, you know, various cities of, Aus various city cities of Australia and uh, New Zealand, and I did a two-week tour in America. So I've been on the road already like six full weeks this year, yeah. you know. And I've had like a wonderful series of experiences, but I sometimes think to myself, isn't it a shame that life has to be lived continuously, you know, that we have to do everything you know, day after day after day, because in leaner years of my career, any one of these like wonderful oh. experiences would have been enough to like fuel me yeah. for a really long time. Yeah. And now I'm just like, next good thing, please, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I'm aware of that, that like, you know, and even as, uh, you know, I've told them I won't travel past like a year from now, um, a year, so the book came out in July of 2022, and I said, well, I'm not gonna travel anymore you know, after July of 2023, and because I need to write again, yeah. you know, but, but in a way that even feels like so subversive to say, no, I don't want to go to Bali, you know, or <laughs> whatever it is. Um, so it's a, stra it's, a, it's a shame, really, that life has to be lived in order. It's something I think about all the time, you know, that, uh, you know, <sighs> Like, it, wouldn't it be interesting just to go back to like one day of like your college years mixed in the middle of just your regular adult life and then, then everything would seem so very novel, you know? Yeah. Yes. The very stores of your youth would seem so exciting, you know? And, um, but, but yes, so I don't think in any case that we all experience time in our heads as continuously as it is lived. Mm. You know, I think the the things, uh, the kind of passions of our, like, childhood, the things, the injuries uh, we receive as kids, they live with us all the time. And so, in a sense, the reason the story is told that way is because I think that's more how humans experience time, you know? Oh, I love that. Um, when you're talking about, like, one mo if we could go back to one moment, you know, um, I really, I have a creative collaborator that I've worked with for many years, mm. and um, I really love making creative work with another person. Um, and I was thinking about how, like, that's what the book is about, you know, that's what their relationship is. Like, it's not just a friendship. It's, um, it's so much more than that, because creative relationships are kind of like, an extra layer on a friendship or, or a romantic relationship. Um, and there's like a moment in your book where Sam and Sadie, like it's right after they've finished their first game, Ichigo, and am I saying that right? I say Ichigo. Ichigo? Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's right after they've finished creating it and they're walking, I think, to Sadie's place and it, you write that they will always remember this morning and I just think like the peak of a creative collaboration or the peak of a creative relationship, I don't know, it's just so interesting to me. And like why are you, why did you want to explore creative relationships? What, what interests you about them? 
Um, I'll just speak to that moment in the book first, which mm. is to say it's a really pure moment because they have finished their first game, mm. but it hasn't been exposed to anyone else yet. Yeah. So it exists in a way for like, in the highest form it will ever exist, yes. before other people weigh in, before the world weighs in and says, this is what it means and this is what it means financially. And so, you know, you can't know what those moments are until you uh, have actually done work that has been exposed to all of those things. Sam and Sadie can't know that. They've never had a game that they've sold before, you know, and so their relationship is about to dramatically change as commerce is introduced into art, you know. But so it's like the last, like, super pure moment for them <laughs> in that book. But in terms of why I wanted to explore, a, like, creative collaboration, it's because we have lots of books about so many kinds of relationships, you know. Um, but usually just the one, which will be two people, usually a man and a woman, get together, and at the end they maybe buy a house and have children, and that's the happy ending, you know? But in fact, the world is really complicated, and we have all kinds of people living all kinds of lives in it, and the world is increasingly more complicated all the time. Yet our fiction sometimes seems to lag. Even the, like, most, like, high-level literary fiction sometimes maintains these sorts of very traditional values <laughs> in it, and, uh, you know, so that's sometimes surprising to me. So in a sense, I wanted to write about relationships that I hadn't seen fully depicted before, the relationship between a man and a woman that, you know, doesn't end in any of, like, the typical things we associate with relationships between men and women, you know. The work, it's, you know, it's about these two people who, um, Instead of, you know, making, <laughs> making a baby or something like that, they make art together, you know, and art is their thing, and that's all it's babies. ever going to be, and it's the highest expression of these two people, and so I think for people, when they read the book, they feel a tension between um, the things that we think we're supposed to want and uh, knowing even that the Sam and Sadie, the best thing they can do is just make, make art together. Mm. Sam thinks about that lots, eh? He's always like, there's moments where he's wondering whether he and Sadie, like, are they going to be in a relationship? But it's funny, it's because Sam thinks, like, he just doesn't want anyone else to have Sadie more than he does. Yeah. I don't yeah. think he actually really wants that relationship, other than he's no. been sort of programmed by society to think that he does. But in truth, he doesn't want that from Sadie. He just doesn't want, like, some other person to have that either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And no one else really does, eh? Like, no one has the Sadie that he has. No, nobody does. Yeah. But I think he's kind of thinking about it also from, you know, an outward perspective as well. You know, like, just he wants the world also to think that, you know, Sam and Sadie are the most important people to each other, and there's no, like, there's no competition for that, mm. you know? Mm. He wants it, and so I understand what that is, you know? Yeah? Yeah. Um... There's, like Sam and Sadie, the first game they make is a hit, like a big, big hit, mm. but they don't consistently make hits. And their relationship to their craft matures as they do and as their own relationship does. And they're making art over the course of like many decades. Mm. Um, and I don't think, like similar to how, I don't think I've read many books about like, really intense creative relationships. I also don't think I've read that many books about 
like sustaining art over the course of your life. Um, are you really interested in what comes after success? I am. I, you know, I think a lot of books, it's kind of uh, similarly to the, the house and the children. It's like you achieve the success and then there's nothing else after it. But in fact, there's a lot after it, you know. And I, I think, you know, for me, I have written 10 novels. Three of them have done, like, really well, which means seven of them have done less well, you know, because we can do math, so. <laughs> And, you know, when I told my agent what the book was about, I said it's about love, art, video games, time, and failure. And my agent was like, hold on a second there. <laughs> Let's just say it's about love, art, video games, and time, because nobody likes failure. The thing is, I love failure. I find failure to be a really creative place. So when my first novel came out, it uh, came into the world and no one wanted to buy it, so we'll call that a failure. And, um, you know, I remember because I'm an overachieving uh, girl, person, that, you know, I was terrified of failure, you know, terrified of being told I was wrong, but then my book came out and it did really poorly. Um, it did poorly both critically and commercially, so don't think there was a silver lining to this. <laughs> when I say it did poorly critically, I mean, um, there was like some good reviews, but the review in the newspaper, which was the f newspaper where I had my first job as a writer, you know, I think they said uh, something like, uh, Gabrielle Zevin wants to mess with your head, but mainly she induces a monster headache, something like that. And I think it had the quote like, I had to resist the urge to throw the book across the room. But that was back when reviews could be really like exciting and intense that way. But so the book failed on all the levels. And I remember going out into New York City and thinking, everyone is looking at me and knows that Gabrielle Zevin's first novel has failed. Like that I would go into a grocery store and I'd be like, can I get an order of lox, which is salmon? And, uh, that that guy at the deli counter would be like, I'm not going to give you that because your book has failed and your money's <laughs> no good here, ma'am, you know? But like, having this kind of delusional fantasy about it, but then after a while you realize uh, nobody's thinking about you at all. That's the great thing about failure. Nobody cares, you know? And so in a sense, I found it over the years to be a very creative place because, as I mentioned, nobody is calling you. Um, you don't do events in 31 cities you know, and you can kind of just uh, figure out what it is you really want to do and what it is you came to say. And so I wanted to talk about that because, and again, my next novel did really, really well, and that it also had its own series of things that were awful about it, you know, which is the surprising thing about success. You know, success isn't terribly creative in a way because success, what happens, they're like, wow, that thing you made, it did really well. Now, can you do the same thing again, a little bit different, but not too different, mm, mm, you know? Mm. And that is really boring. <laughs> and so it's a lot of what Sadie and Sam struggle with is what to do next. Do we do, do we repeat ourselves? And, and so I wanted to write about all the different ways um, like you can kind of iterate failure and success across an artistic career. Now, as somebody whose first novel came out uh, 18 years ago, I just am aware of the fact that to publish across many years is to live with kind of ghost versions of yourself as well. You know, like there are ways in which I feel very disconnected from uh, the person who wrote that first novel, you know. Mm.
So all the things. And, and I feel like, again, avoiding speaking of failure is, is super unhealthy across all professions, not just the arts. But the only thing I know about uh, you know, a creative life is that if you keep trying things, um, and even if you don't, uh, there is an inevitability that you may fail. That's the only, it's always a possibility out there. And so once you can decide that failure itself, and when you divorce that from, again, financial concerns, and, which is a huge thing to say, I know, because what, how can you easily divorce those two things? But once, if you can divorce it a little from that, um, then the failure itself doesn't mean all that much. It's very reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's the way you describe it, that like place of failure, not that I'm imagining it because obviously I failed, but like that place of failure feels similar to that moment with Sam and Sadie where the game only belongs to them. Yeah. Like you don't, you have no idea what comes up, like what comes next. Eh? Well, I have like a friend who I've made who is a game designer and you know, I was saying, oh, the books are kind of about failure and that person was saying to me, uh, Anyway, I said to, to this person who's really successful, I said, you know, but you wouldn't know about that because all of your games have been super successful. Mm -hmm. And that person then said to me, like, well, in fact, uh, the sequel to my game, like the first one had sold like 20 million copies and the second one only sold 17, you know? <laughs> but, in, but like when he felt it should grow, you know? Yeah. And so on some level, what I'm saying is, I think even people that you perceive to be having like enormous successes, I, it's just part of every process. A and in a way, like our social media doesn't allow us to have these experiences because they aestheticize everything into sort of the appearance of constant success, you know? And even things that are lightly failures, you kind of turn into like, here is a pretty picture of something, you know? And, and so uh, I guess I'm, I'm always happy to speak about, uh, to speak about failure. Thank you. Um, Oh my God, this is so fun. Like, I just literally get to sit here and just ask you things that I've really wanted to know. <laughs> and you have so many pages. I do. <laughs> I feel a bit, like, drunk with power right now, actually. Um, oh, yeah, so I really enjoyed that Sadie was, like, the technical brains mm. of, the, of the duo. Um, and that was, like, really well-defined in the book. And it's interesting, I felt, I felt like that was very intentional because in life, a lot of the time, I don't think that women are credited for our technical skill. Like, mm. it's often passed off as instinct or even accident. Um, but yeah, why was it important for you, like, for her to be there? You know, Sam also has skills, but Sadie's the one that's trained as a programmer, and she has more skills than him, for sure. I was thinking about, there were only a couple places where a person could study game design in the 90s, and so one of them was MIT. I went to Harvard, which if you don't know, is about a mile, they're about a mile apart, so I had a lot of familiarity with MIT and friends who went there and things like that. And the thing about going to uh, MIT in the era in which Sadie went to it is that, like, basically, uh, I think it was, you know, two-thirds of the students then were men, and the belief was that the women who got in, it was easier for them to get in, you know. 
And that's because statistically it was, but the statistics also don't always tell the truth. So really, the reason that's so is because women tend to self-eliminate from even applying to a prestigious technical school like MIT. So like kind of a relatively stupid man is perfectly happy to think, I should be accepted to MIT. But even a very qualified woman might say, I don't know if I'm going to get in. Yeah. You know, so in fact, the numbers of women that are admitted are higher, you know, but there are reasons for that. And so I knew that was a huge part of like, the core of Sadie's character, thinking like she hated that she was going to MIT and that people believed she'd gotten in on some kind of girl curve. You know? mm -hmm. And so this is like a hugely motivating factor for her. Um, and later, and it follows her her whole career, like she has to be so careful about how she presents herself and, and even the assumptions people make, like when they go and finally sell the game we mentioned, Ichigo, like when they go to sell it, uh, the men who make all the decisions in this situation are so much more delighted to think that Sam is the one who has done everything. And I have had these experiences myself, you know, like it seems like if there's a man anywhere nearby, everybody's really happy to give him credit for the thing that you've done. And so this was part of like Sadie's, I think, uh, like essential conflict all the time. And sometimes even though Sam himself isn't bringing this, these prejudices or these biases, it's still it, like, deeply colors their relationship, mm. you know. Yeah, it gets put on them from the outside, eh, regardless yeah. of what they do. Um, I, I wonder how many people here have read Elsewhere, or who are here because of, oh yeah. Um, oh, sick, cool. That one person. No, I could see, I could see lots of hands going up. Because <laughs> um, we, you know, we will, get back to tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, but I just loved Elsewhere so much. Mm. Um, so for people who haven't read it, Elsewhere is um, a story about a 15-year-old girl called Liz who dies when um, she's hit by a car and she ends up in a place called Elsewhere where she kind of gets to live um, another life a little bit. Um, so it's a book about second chances and about forgiveness, but it's also like definitely just a book about death for young people. <laughs> and I love, I love reading about death. I think lots of people who have lost people like reading about death because it's nice to um, think of, you know, people that you miss. But like, does talking about death matter to you? I think... It does matter to me because if you think about it, um, like failure, it's a subject we avoid. But also like failure, and even more than failure, it is inevitable. We know that all that lives must die in this world. And so to me, it's deeply unhealthy not to talk about what that might be. You know, um, you know when I wrote that book, I had never actually, so my, my two first, my the two novels I had that came out, the first and the second, I wrote at the same time. One was for adults. That was the failure we mentioned, the one that everyone wished <laughs> to throw across the room. And then the second one was Elsewhere, which came out and did really, really well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me at that time, the difference between those books is that I had never actually published anything for an audience before. And so I didn't really think about, um, again, who would read it in a, in a way. You know, and so when I wrote Elsewhere, what I thought it was, was I thought it was a piece of fantasy of the kind that like children and adults would read in the style of like a little prince or something like that. Mm -hmm. But at that moment in time, um, 
the like young adult market was sort of ex was beginning to explode, you know. And so to me, it was published in a very awkward way, which I never actually saw it for young adults at all. You know, I saw it either as for children or for adults, that kind of thing. Um, but but I think, you know. When I look at the book, I think the reason we write books about death is because we're trying to make sense of life. You know, I didn't see it ever as a like, here is a guide to the afterlife for you, child. You know, <laughs> I didn't see it as I was trying to start, you know, a religion or a cult or anything like that. I really, all I saw it as was a way for, you know, people who read it to figure out how to live the life that they are living better, you know. And, uh, you know, so that, that's what I thought. And then you realize, because when you publish something and it does well, that every, it's out of control, every single person's reaction to it. It's basically you unleash some kind of tiny monster into the world, you know. And, uh, but, but I think it's, it's actually been a, a, a fun experience because, again, it's been 18 years since both those two novels came out. And so I'll meet a lot of people, and you may be one of them, who read like elsewhere when they were like a kid, and now they're in their 30s or something, and they'll be like, uh, you've kind of uh, messed me up twice, you know, <laughs> as a child and now an adult. And I say, well, happy You're to welcome. do it. Yeah. <laughs> There's like the most beautiful description of life in Elsewhere, where um, like the life that we live here is described as the tree going up, and death is like the roots going down. Yeah. And that was just so comforting and cool to me. Um, so going back to, you were talking about like, you, you think you might come across as an extrovert, but you're really an introvert mm. and um, what goes into your books and stuff. And I, I saw you say in an interview that the, um, the introvert who writes the books is very different from the extrovert who has to go out and promote them. Um, and I am, I think you touched on this briefly, but I'm interested in whether like, there is a third self, like a part of you that's only communicated through your art. Mm. Like, you know, Sam can only really live as like a fully able-bodied person in, mm. in the games that he makes. Mm. What's that? other person? Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I will say that a feeling I have is that the experience of meeting me does not necessarily improve my books, you know? <laughs> In a sense, you know, there's this... Just to say, like, to, to, to speak to the earlier part of that question and then hopefully land somewhere nearby, um, you know, the extrovert that goes out to promote the books is the introvert who writes them really resents that person. <laughs> they're making up all these stories, they're, you know, they're telling tales out of school, they're not really necessarily even saying the truth of the situation, which is that, you know, I think part of going to promote a book is reverse engineering a bunch of anecdotes about the writing of that book, mm. you know, to where it kind of, you almost, there's a different sort of thing that you're saying that doesn't necessarily have that much to do with the actual kind of writing of the book at all. You know, and so over the years, I've made, I have made peace with the fact that both of these people exist. It's touched upon in the book a little bit, like Sadie, when she is young, is not as good at Sam at going out to promote things, mm. you know. 
And in a sense, that's because she has fewer role models as of uh, you know, female game designers that are wildly successful. She doesn't really know how to uh, present herself in public. And for me, it took a long time, I think, to understand this part of the job. And now I take a certain pleasure in it because I'm, I've done it a lot, and I feel like I can do that job. But, but I do think the third person is, is the work itself. And they're really not either, they're not either the introvert who writes them or the extrovert who goes and presents them. I mean, the book itself is separate. And that's why I say uh, I don't know that meeting me uh, is helpful to that experience. I think sometimes, and it's why I don't do a ton on social or anything like that, I think sometimes, like, if you go into reading something and you know all about exactly what the person thinks, where they stand politically, what they ate for breakfast, and everything else that you might know about a person, you kind of can't have the purest experience when you go to consume that mm. book because it's been, again, colored by all of these. It's been positioned by all of these things. And so, uh, you know, I did an interview several months ago, and they said, you know, what's the first thing you would want readers to know about you? I would say, <laughs> and I told them that I value my privacy. <laughs> um, and I really do, of all things, and not just because I'm, like, weird and I don't want to talk to you or something like that, but also because it's of pivotal importance, I think, for art to exist a little separately from artists, mm. you know? I think, um, you know, the more you know about me, the safer it makes the work and your experience of that work, you know? And so I value knowing less about authors when I go into reading something. And then afterwards, I want to find out everything. But I still kind of don't want to necessarily know everything about a person when I go into reading a book, mm. you know? Mm. It also divorces me from responsibility of if that person is terrible, <laughs> you know? The artist or the, or the art, well, if I don't know too much about the artist, then I don't have to worry, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's also like, it must be, after you've said so much, like written a whole book with so many ideas, mm. then to go and talk about, do you ever just feel like, oh, just read the book, you know? <laughs> like, I said it. Well, a fascinating thing has been that, like, you know, many people will apologize to me before we do an interview or something, because I think I've done, like, I don't know. I can't, I actually don't know. It's amazing the number of podcasts one can do. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> the number is approximately 653,000, I think. No, I'm kidding, <laughs> you know. But I feel like I've done just about that many podcasts in the last year. I believed you know? it before you added the 1,000. Yeah. I was like, yeah, 653. I think, right. I think it's like 300 could be accurate. That's a lot. That's a lot of podcasts. Yeah. But the amazing thing about it has been that there are some overlaps and things that we'll speak about. But really, because the book has so many different ways in which you could approach it. You could mm. talk about race and cultural appropriation. Mm. You could talk about what it is to be a woman in the arts. You could talk about disability. You could talk about sexuality. You could talk about... The conversations have been wildly different. So in a sense, I've never kind of reached a stability with even giving answers about, about the book because it's there. I feel proud of this, that the uh, book, the experience people have reading the book um, can be very different based on the person that they are. You know, and so it's been really interesting, actually. I mean, that's why the book's so great, because you can, like, <laughs> pull so much out of it, and it feels like it's speaking to you directly. I feel like there's a sort of magic to that that I don't completely understand. Like, when I finished writing the book, the first person who read it is my, my partner. And when, you know, 
he read it, he said, uh, you wrote this book for me. And I kind of was laughing, and I was like, no, I, I kind of wrote it for me, actually. But then I gave it to my next reader, who is my agent, and he said, he's a very different person than me or my partner. And he said, you wrote this book for me. And I said, you know, again, not, not really. <laughs> and this has happened like thousands of times since then, oh to where it's this kind of, and I, and I really think, but, and again, I met like a really famous game designer at one point, and he said, you wrote this book for me. And I said, um, well, a little bit for you, yes. <laughs> um, but mostly, but it's been this amazing thing, all kinds of people from all that, like, and I don't know exactly what that is, except I feel like, again, <sighs> at, the person I am, maybe I didn't necessarily feel as if fiction always met what my needs were. And so maybe by meeting my own needs, a lot of other people had these same needs and desires for their fiction as well. How will we get through it? I don't know. Uh, so many it's pages. stressful for me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I've I mean, we need to talk about video games, you know, at some point. Um, and I don't, I don't play video games, but after reading this book, I understood why people play video games, because I feel like the same re reason that I read fiction is the same reason why people play games, you know? Well, I just think it's another form of art, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so, in a sense, it's a new form of art and a young form of art. Its entire history is contained within my, with my, li in, within my lifetime, mm. you know? And so, in a sense, uh, a lot of people's feelings about video games are because uh, it's new, you mm. know. Mm. But there's such a, like, beautiful world that Sam creates for Sadie, like, mm. specifically for her, which is just, like, the ultimate, I don't know, like, love letter. Like, I, I built you a place to be because yeah. the place that you're in is so hard and so painful right now. Um, is, is that video game that he created like your ideal video game? It isn't. I don't think it's anyone's ideal video game in a sense. Like I Sadie? think so much of Sam and Sadie's journey is, you know, Sadie because she is rich and Sam because he is both uh, lower middle class and disabled, mm. you know they have different things that they want to do because in a sense, Sadie doesn't have the imperative to make money, but mm -hmm. Sam has an imperative that he needs to make money, mm -hmm. you know, and so in a sense, the division between them is that, uh, you know, Sadie wants to make art and Sam wants to make commerce. And really that's one of the essential conflicts between them and the essential conflicts of the book. The fact that art, it's difficult for art to completely exist separate from commerce, you know. And so by the time Sam makes this game in the book, you know, in a way, it's a full circle moment for him because he doesn't care about this game as commerce. Mm -hmm. You know, he just wants to, and he doesn't even care about it as art. He just wants to use it to talk to somebody else, to say something to somebody else. It's a, you know, a shout into the void, really. Um, and so I think when you look at the Sam character, both Sam and Sage, and you asked me about kind of where these characters started from, you know, they did actually start from a simple question, which is who games? So in the case of Sadie, I think one of the reasons she games is because her sister had this childhood illness and almost died. And so in a sense, games are a way for her to escape mortality. But in the case of Sam, he games for that reason, but also because he has a body that doesn't always work perfectly. So if you look at the first scene of the book, 
Um, you see Sam trying to get through a train station, and it's actually really difficult. The ground is slippery, there are stairs, there are many things for him to grapple with to get out of this train station. And so for Sam, it's like, basically, the video games are easy, you know? It's like the video game that is real life that is quite challenging for him. So by the time we get to the moment in which he is making this game, I think what you have with Sam and Sadie, and with Sam particularly, is he is a person who can say things better through art than he can just talking to somebody. Like for somebody else, they could just say, like, I miss you, and I, I wish we were closer again, and how can I help? But Sam is not capable of saying those things. And so I think it's one of the reasons we use art to talk to each other, really, just to communicate. I had a dad who is a computer programmer. I still have him. Um, he's still, he's actually visiting my house right now, um, but I am not there. But in any case, so he's having a lovely time with my partner. Um, but my, my dad is a computer programmer, and so something I think I understood from when I was a kid is that, you know, Computer programming sounds very sciencey and very exotic, but really it's just somebody learning a particular set of languages, not unlike learning Polish or German or something like that, or Maori, to communicate something to someone else. And so, in a sense, that is what Sam does when he makes uh, pioneers. You know, he's trying to communicate to someone he loves a specific message. Um, so we will. Ooh. Um, go to questions in a couple minutes. I just have one more question I want to ask Gabrielle, but I think there's, um, yeah, little mics. If you want to ask questions, just like pop up next to a mic and we'll shout out soon. But um, I wanted to ask, so I know that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is being turned into a film. Mm. Um, are you in the process of writing the screenplay for it? Well, currently, no, because the Writers Guild of America is on strike. Of course. Right. So, yeah. in a sense, it's only that I've had this, this trip planned to Australia and New Zealand that I am not actually mandated to go pick it, <laughs> you oh, know? Right, right. Um, so, I'm currently not writing the script because nobody is writing anything. Mm. But I will say when I... Uh, I think an interesting thing, maybe, is that obviously the... Or not obviously, but when the, when the book was submitted to people to make in Hollywood, you know. One, I told them I want it to be a limited series, and so of course it's sold to movies, you know. <laughs> I think it's 30 years of characters, and like movies tend to be a lot of like, you know, kissing and fighting and kissing and fighting, you know. <laughs> and I'm often asked like, what scene are you most like looking forward to seeing in the movie? And the answer is always something that will never be in a two hour movie, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I would like to see them go to the peach farm, but I know actually, even though I am the one whose hand is on the wheel, that that is not something that fits in there. So there are still ways in which I think it would be better suited to a longer form because of the 30-year scope of the story and the, yeah. sort of, the sort of ways it moves. And even the state of the movie business itself, which in America is basically just Marvel movies and horror movies and literally nothing else, you know. But I think an encouraging thing about um, the fact that there was quite a big bidding war and a big sale for the film rights to this is I think a decade ago, um, nobody would have wanted it. And because because it has a biracial Asian disabled lead, you know, and it has uh, another Asian lead, and, and I think, uh, and they're all young people, and so in, in a sense, the movie is, quote, not castable, mm. you know? But in, I think, the past decade, 
it's not like it's gotten perfect, but there's more openness and uh, more of a sense that they want to show stories of more kinds of people. And so, you know, I think like maybe it's a tribute to that fact that so many people were like, yes, please give me your story about like this, like these Asians who are nerds making a game, you know? <laughs> like we definitely want to turn that into a film. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm really excited to see it. Um, does anyone have any questions? Because you know that I'll just keep going if you don't have questions. So, yeah, sure. Thank you for being here, Gabrielle. That's wonderful. There's a, uh, a writing challenge that I perceive in quite a few books, including in a couple of yours. And I wonder if or what I perceive is there's a, um, a really fine balance in developing and writing characters such as some of yours, uh, that fine balance between plausibility and then sort of tipping over into caricature or parody or satire, mm. and then also at the same time maintaining characters that can effectively uh, challenge the, um, uh, the status quo or the social conditioning that I, I think you referred to and sort of still be a little bit subversive and all that good stuff. Is that, is that something that, that you find? And if so, how, would, how do you manage it? Um, it's not, the, I guess the way that you articulate it is not a way I articulate it to myself. Like, I don't really worry about uh, passing into caricature, you know? I, I, I'm interested in uh, people as they are, you know? And so I think, you know, uh, just to, I, I don't know if I'm going to answer this question well, but I think that there are, I hate people who say this kind of thing, but I think there are sort of two kinds of writers in the world, and there are some writers who, uh, choose uh, to write books that live in the world, and then there are some that choose to write books that don't live in the world. And I understand why uh, readers are even drawn to the kind of fiction that doesn't live in the world. You know, but for me, uh, the highest purpose of fiction is to reflect uh, life as it is lived and the times that we particularly live in. If you think of the word novel, uh, the synonym for novel is actually new, you know? And so in a sense, that's what I see as my work. I'm not really worrying about, um, I don't care if a character ends up funny or mean or sad. I just want to let them be uh, humans because we're funny and sad and mean and all those things at the same time at once. I think one of the things that has been useful for me as a writer, thinking about character, is realizing that most human beings, um, we can hold multiple things in our heads at once. We can know what the right thing to do is and still do a different thing. We can know what the right thing to say is and still say something completely else. But often book characters aren't allowed to do this. Um, but, but that is something that's more important to me when I, when I think about writing characters. Does anyone else have any? Questions? Yeah, cool. In Sydney, they told them to queue, you know? Yeah. I mean... I guess we're just... <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, thank you for writing the book. It made me cry several times. It was beautiful. Oh, well, that's and, good. And this Christmas, I want a PlayStation. I've never gamed before, but um, I'm dying to get into gaming. 
Um, there was, as we've discussed today, there's so much in this book and so many ideas. And when I was reading it, I was like struck about how you actually managed all of those ideas. So could you talk to your writing process? Are you a plotter? Are you a prancer? Did you have this huge outline? Is there a lot of stuff that didn't end up in the book? There's not a lot of stuff that didn't end up in the book. I'll take the easiest part the first. Um, in terms of process, I feel like, uh, you know, I've done... The first author event I ever did, there was another author who uh, was senior to me at that time. I considered her old, but she was probably my age. And she uh, said, you know, this is my process. I light a candle, I turn on some music, I lay down on my shade long, and, and then I'm ready to write. And at that time, I lived in an apartment where all there was was like one couch in which I entertained eight you know, was my office and desk and did everything on it. And so I think in a way, like, people fall in love with stories of writers' processes, and it's sort of unhealthy, you know? Because even now, if I answer your question, I'm spinning you a story about the process, but the process is so wildly complicated to explain. I'm not, I think, uh, so when I started coming up with the idea for tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, I keep notes. Uh, in a notebook, and they are not attractive. Like if they go into the, you know, the house of Gabrielle Zevin Museum, at some point people will be like, "These notebooks, these are not, these don't seem profound at all. These seem like garbage." <laughs> um, but on the day I came up with the idea for this book, I wrote something like the story of these two characters who uh, the games they make uh, reflect their lives, basically. And on that same day, I have a picture of a bathroom floor plan, because we have this really annoying bathroom in my house, and we wanted to remodel it, so I was like, how do we get a sink and a shower? And, and so there's a lot of elaborate measurements on this same page, and I care very... And anyway, so I don't necessarily have a sense on the day that I've written that idea that anything will come of it, but the way I start writing a book is, it's sort of like thinking about maybe somebody you might want to sleep with or something, you know? Like, I'll, I'll Google some things about it, and I'll... Uh, do a little research and, and see what, what, kind of, what kind of clings to it. And then I, I began to see at a certain point that the book uh, could be something because I realized that the entire history of video games was contained within my, my lifetime. And so that really what I could do with the story was a, uh, a Kunstler Roman, a coming of age of an artist story that was also the coming of age of an entire industry. And so that to me was interesting. But that said, you can have all these beautiful ideas about what you want to do, and you have nothing if characters and story don't attach themselves to it. So in terms of my process, I'm doing everything all the time, all at once. Um, basically, I, uh, you know, at that point, I wrote a little bit, I started to research extensively because I began to like, uh, realize that my own kind of 40 years of gaming that I had done was inadequate because I hadn't treated it as a subject that was uh, a worthy research subject in a way. I'm giving you such a long answer. You just said plotter or pantser. I could have just said, you know, neither, done, you know. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but instead I had to make this wildly complicated. I'm trying to convey some truth about how I actually work, I think, as opposed to just giving you some like cute reply, but, but, but yes, I started to research, again, video games, treating it in the same way that I treated uh, being an English major at Harvard, like really thinking what were the greatest games, kind of forming a canon, playing what I could, 
And then still, I didn't know if I had a book. I had these two characters at some point on a train station and platform, and I was like, I don't know. And so for the first three years I worked on it, I researched a lot and had about 10,000 words or something like that. It wasn't until the pandemic when, you know, I don't know if you all remember, but it kind of felt like the world might end, you know, that I thought to myself, I think I want to just get these two people off this train platform, you know? And so I thought, if the world does end, and even if there are no books, and this book is never published, I just want to solve this story. I want to figure that out. And so um, I went at it again. So I, I actually only like to know two things when I'm working. One of them is, boy, there are like 27 seconds left and somebody else in line. Um, but basically, I, I like to know kind of what a title would be in a sense of an ending. And I had neither one when I started working on this. I had a title maybe at the three-quarter mark and then the sense of an ending. Uh, I like to know that because I like to think, oh, there's some way I can land this plane if I take it up in the air. But I had neither one. Um, but, but I'm somebody who structures over and over and over and over again and also somebody who reads every single page of my work um, every day I start to work again. And that's because I like to be in the exact same place as you are um, as a writer, uh, as the reader will be when I get there. And those are some things about how I work, but I don't think it falls into easy categories of plotting or, plotting or pantsing. Pantsing is such a weird thing to say anyway, but you. you're welcome. Well, thank you for the answer. Oh, very quickly, can I? Yeah, but May I? I think we can, right? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah, I know. Okay. There's the, you guys can't see the ominous like, countdown clock, you know? Yeah. It's like a double zero, so I don't know what yeah, happens. The I room think explodes we're just on something. borrowed time right now. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, it's not, it's like, okay. So um, without giving out a spoiler, uh, the reason that Sam and his mum uh, leave New York is probably one of the worst case scenarios you can think of to leave New York. And I was wondering how your leaving New York has been, because there's a strong literary tradition of writers who live New York, leave New York and how they feel about it? I mean, there's an equally strong literary tradition of writers going to California and that not going well. So I've done both <laughs> of those things. Um, but uh, so the thing that happens to uh, Sam and his mother, I had a variation of that happen to me, which I did not even take as a sign. Um, mainly the reason I left New York was because I had made enough money as a writer that I could buy a very tiny apartment in New York or a relatively okay-sized house back then in Los Angeles. And just the promise of being able to do laundry in the privacy of my own home was too sexy to resist. And so I found that to be a really good experience. Um, when I moved to LA, at first, the rhythms of it were so wrong for writing that I was like, I don't know how I'm ever gonna write in this city again. And it took me a very long time to not hate LA because in a sense, we are a program to hate LA, you know? LA is the one city that if you live in, um, people will feel free to come up to you and tell you how much they dislike it, you know? I'm like, I live there, I kind of like it now. But it took, but it's, I think in a sense it's because it's not an easy city to master. And so um, it took me probably a decade to be like, I like living here. I think I, I feel like I'm from here a bit, you know? Uh, so I don't know if that answers the question, but I feel like some of the 
you know, again, when I think about the book and all the cities it takes place in, like, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Los Angeles, New York, Tokyo, a little bit Austin, Texas, a little bit San Francisco, these are all places I have lived. And in a way, I was writing so much during uh, the pandemic, in a time when we couldn't travel anywhere, that all of the cities are kind of depicted with a, a particular sensual longing for city life that I don't really see in my other books at all. Thank you. You're welcome. So, um, if anyone has any more questions, um, Gabrielle will be at the author signing table in the foyer immediately after the session where she will be signing books. So, thank you. <laughs>